All right. Well, if you don't know me, my name is David. For those of you that are visiting, and uh, Pastor Brennan uh, texted me earlier today, and I texted him back, and he said, sorry, it was a little while before I texted you back. I was heading down a 5,500-foot descent down to the bottom of a canyon something. So anyway, I think he lost signal on his phone for a while. Uh, But anyway, so it sounds like they're having a good time. And uh, all right. Well, go ahead and open your Bibles up to 1 Peter tonight. 1 Peter. I started studying um, 1 Peter probably a couple months ago. And then Pastor Brennan, uh, of course, scheduled some of us on these Wednesday nights. So I uh, kind of accelerated my study through the, through the book. There's a whole lot to cover, and I hated just to stay in the first couple chapters. So I'm going to try to give some highlights through uh, the last three chapters of, of 1 Peter tonight, but spend some time on the first couple chapters. So, And the whole reason for picking 1 Peter to study was, of course, we've probably been involved with conversations, and we've talked a whole lot about what all is going on right now and what does that mean for the church. And, um, of course, there's been a whole lot of Q&A and different things about the mark of the beast and what does COVID mean and the vaccine and, and um, of course, the, the whole persecution of the church and what, does that, what that means for, uh, of course, uh, the new administration and what changes are going to happen. And there's been so much discussion surrounding all that. I just decided to dive into First Peter because... Um, no, so First Peter was ri- written around the time of uh, 64, 65 A.D., and that was around the time that uh, w- when the burning of Rome happened. And, of course, Nero blamed the Christians for that, and because of that, he started, of course, his tyranny against Christians, lighting them on fire, using them to light his garden at night, uh, slaughtering them by the tens of thousands. So uh, that was kind of the, what was going on in, in the area when Peter wrote this letter. And uh, so I thought about, not that I expect that uh, uh, we're, uh, we're going to be facing that here in America in our lifetime anyway, but truth be told, I think that we have and we will be facing as a church uh, some resistance. I think we already have started facing that. And um, I guess the question that I wanted to start asking myself a couple months ago when I dove into First Peter was, am I ready for that? Um, do I feel like my family's ready for that? Do I feel like my kids are ready for that? And so as we kind of dive into 1 Peter, and again, I, I think it's, I mean, it's an exciting study. I'm not going to uh, be teaching about doom and gloom tonight, obviously, but um, just to bring some encouragement as Peter wanted to do for the church. So let's just have a quick word of prayer, and uh, we'll get started tonight. God, thank you so much for the opportunity we have to come together as your people, uh, Lord, your church, to uh, just study your word. God, we thank you for the freedom that we do enjoy, God, that we can sing together, God, that we can lift up your name, we can praise you, we can talk about you in public. God, we can read your word, and God, we can even gather here tonight. And God, we acknowledge, Lord, that that is a freedom that uh, many of our brothers and sisters around the world uh, may not have. And God, we uh, just pray that we would, uh, Lord, just take advantage of the freedom that you've allowed us to have in, in worshiping you and speaking of you freely. God, I pray that you would prepare our hearts tonight, Lord, even in this very moment, Lord, as we go through um, this book that's very special. And God, I pray that you would just work on our hearts, God, to help us prepare ourselves, God, to ready our minds. Lord, uh, to be motivated to live lives of holiness and and humility. And God, we pray that you would help us, Lord, just to um, recognize in our own life how that, uh, God, outside of you, there's nothing good in us. And God, we just thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the cross. And God, we thank you. Uh, that you want to use our life and you want to speak through us. God, help us now as we uh, get into your word in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so First Peter, I'm going to go um, a little old school on us, old school Wednesday night. I'm going to ask a few of you to look up some scripture verses and help me do some reading tonight, okay? So we're not going to be ready right off the bat, but if somebody could find Romans 8.17 for me. Romans 8.17. Ruth, all right, appreciate that. Uh, Psalm 73.26. Krista, very good. Psalm 16.5. Thank you, Nate. Psalm 16.5. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10.13. All right, thank you, Miss Faith. 2 Corinthians 12.9-10. through 10. 2 Corinthians 12.9-10. through 10. Thank you, Trish. And one, let's see here. Micah 6.8. What? Micah 6.8. Thank you. Who, who got it? 
Mackenzie. Mackenzie's got it. All right, Mike is 6A. Appreciate that. We'll get to those here in just a few minutes. Okay, so this letter was writ- written, believed to have been written, of course, obviously, by Peter, is self-identified as the writer in chapter 1, written around AD 64. And, um, of course, Peter and Paul were belie- are believed to have died around AD 68, so shortly after this time, uh, right, right after he wrote the book of Second Peter. Um, and so he didn't have a whole lot of time left on the earth when he wrote First Peter. And the thing about Peter that we need to realize is that, um, you know, we just going through Matthew, we understand um, the life of Peter when Jesus was on earth, the, the denial and different things like that. We understand that part, but dumping right over into Acts, uh, Acts uh, we see Pentecost, right? We see where Peter um, is used by God to do an amazing work at Pentecost and, of course, an amazing work in the church throughout um, modern-day Turkey and, of course, uh, Israel and so forth. Uh, but Peter was told by Jesus himself that he was going to be crucified one day. And so just uh, recognize that Peter knew how he was going to die. And seeing Jesus go through that, how was that making Peter... I mean, it did, he didn't lose any motivation through it. I, I know that much. Uh, I know a guy that said, uh, you know, if I knew where I was going to die, I'd never go there. Right? So Peter knew how he was going to die. Uh, he just didn't know when. And uh, shortly thereafter, of course, it was believed during the reign of Nero that Peter and Paul both were killed. Um, but just keeping, I want us to get a really good perspective of where Peter's coming from. Not just Peter, but the church as a whole. Um, no doubt there was a lot of fear in the church. No doubt there was a lot of fear in Christianity, maybe some hiding going on. Uh, people were really fearful about what was going to happen to them, their families, trying to put ourselves in their shoes. Uh, he was writing a letter to them trying to encourage them trying to encourage these uh, believing Gentiles that were scattered around modern-day Turkey, trying to encourage them in their faith in light of what's going on. So starting in 1 Peter, I'll be reading uh, from the ESV, so it may be, uh, you may have a different translation that reads a little bit uh, differently, um, but we should be pretty matched up. All right, so 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, modern-day Turkey. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So just taking a quick stop on that statement to those who are elect exiles. Now, this isn't a lesson on election. However, um, there is plenty to speak about when it comes to what the Bible says about election. But we know that uh, through Scripture that Jesus doesn't choose who's going to be saved and who's not going to be saved. He doesn't damn certain people to hell when he creates them and when they're born and others he doesn't. But we do know that through his perfect foreknowledge that he knows who is going to accept him and who is not. Imagine being in the place of God, knowing, still longing for that all men should come to repentance, loving that person, but knowing through that perfect foreknowledge and omniscience that that person is really going to spend an eternity in hell. What a difficult position that must be for God to uh, give us free will, uh, but be totally sovereign. It's almost kind of like, man, how much he loves them. Wouldn't it just be great if I could just save them all, right? What a difficult position that must be to love um, humanity that much, but yet knowing that through his perfect foreknowledge that there will be those that are lost. But we know that at the very moment we choose Christ, he does choose us right? First Peter chapter 1, verse 3, as we continue, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Praise God for that we have a living hope tonight, right? As we sang, we have a living hope. We don't have a dead hope. We don't have a maybe hope. It's not a hope like we hope that uh, our hydrangeas make it through the night tonight. Um, you know, it's a, it's a hope that's based on fact, right? So this word blessed, the use of the word blessed here comes from a Greek word eulogitos. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Eulogitos. It's different from other places in Scripture where the word blessed comes from the word makarios, such as in Matthew chapter 5, all the beatitudes as we call them. That word blessed comes from makarios, meaning happy. Here in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 3, this word blessed comes from this word eulogitos, where we get our word eulogy. 
This specific word in Scripture is only used towards God, or only when verses are about God. And it's talking about, and it, it means giving praise or speaking well of. All right? So Peter's saying praise to God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the re- resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amazing thing in First Peter, as he writes, he's always pointing back to Jesus. Uh, he talks about persecution, he talks about trials, but he always goes back to Jesus. And uh, just an amazing part that we'll try to uh, highlight here tonight. Verse number four, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So our inheritance, kept in heaven for you. Verse five, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So our hope is in a resurrected Christ, a living hope, and it talks about this inheritance that's kept in heaven. So what is our inheritance? Romans 8, 17. Heirs of, heirs of God, heirs of Him. Very good. Appreciate that. Uh, Psalm 73, 26. My portion forever. You know, inheritance was a really big thing back in Jewish culture. Um, all, the, uh, all the children would get a portion of this inheritance that the father had uh, created or saved, Right? And the firstborn always had a greater portion of that inheritance, but nonetheless, everybody got a portion. So uh, this is kind of leaning on that type of language here when it says, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. My portion of what? My portion of our inheritance. Uh, Psalm 16.5, Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. Over and over in Scripture we see where, especially in Psalms, uh, the psalmist relates to God as his portion so as we see through this, you know, we often, I mean, who isn't looking forward to heaven, right? As we get older, don't we look forward and long for heaven more and more? For various reasons, right? We uh, start hurting. <laughs> we, want, uh, we want the pains to go away. We start losing loved ones. Maybe we start seeing friends from our youth and from college dying, and that's hard. And we see loved ones pass away. And then we start seeing sin really take a hold of people that we love. We see the effects of sin on our own life. We start longing for heaven even more. Now, praise God that he's a whole lot more merciful than we are. (laughs) Because if we could call it, say, God, we're done. Let's go. Let's just push that button. Let's have you come back. God's a whole lot more merciful than, than, than we ever could be, waiting for more to come to him. So we see here that the Father is our inheritance. The person, not the place. I mean, heaven's going to be amazing, right? God's preparing that place for us. But it's to spend eternity with Him, right? So being in the presence of the Father is our inheritance, right? According to these verses that we read. You know, it's not the retreat of heaven that's our inheritance. It's the Redeemer. You know, He's our peace in our storms. He's our joy in suffering. He's our makarios, right? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And that's where Peter's going next as he's talking about being tried and tested and suffering persecution for doing what's right, for following Christ. So this inheritance is kept for us in heaven. Uh, this word kept for us in heaven literally means guarded or to attend to carefully or to take care of. God's taking care of that. He's guarding it. Uh, that inheritance is in heaven waiting for us. So um, we were out of town for about a week and the day after we got back, Allie's parents left uh, uh, out of town for a week. And so while either of us are out of town, we always take care of this time of year. We always go over to each other's houses and water plants, right? It's a good thing to do. Keep the, keep the plants alive. Keep the flowers blooming. Um, you can always tell when you get home if they really did get watered, right? Are you all still alive? Okay. <laughs> um, so, you know, you help take care of those plants in somebody's absence, right? so that when they come home, they have beautiful flowers to come home to. Um, Just a silly little uh, illustration of the same thing that God's doing for us. He's caring for that inheritance, Um, and he's he's tending to it carefully. 1 Peter chapter 1, start in verse 6 here. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, 
that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, these trials that he talks about in verse 6, these trials are ones that result in a pure faith, just like gold that is tried and tested in the fire. Suffering various trials, you know, is difficult. Bobby and I were, were talking a little bit about this before the service. And, you know, we often ask ourselves, God, when are you going to bring justice to this situation, right? We see uh, injustice done to people, and we see innocent people that hurt. And we see uh, innocent people uh, that, that suffer unnecessarily. And we wonder, God, when's, when's justice going to happen? God, when are you going to make this right? And sometimes we may even struggle with the fact that, God, why do you allow this to happen? But going back to God's mercy... You know, God's mercy is always at work. But there may be sometimes when God, of course, God, I think we can all, all testify to the fact that God's mercy is always evident in our own life. But during those times when we see in our own life, God, when is this right going, uh, wrong going to be made right in my life? When is this discomfort, this anguish, when is it going to go away? When is it going to lighten up? Let, let our minds be drawn to the fact that through that, God may be being merciful to somebody else in our life. You know, and that's kind of an unfortunate thought, right? That we are suffering at, for the sake of somebody else to be experiencing mercy. But knowing that God's mercy is always at work. Even when we can't see it, even when we don't notice it in our own life, even when we may seem like, God, I don't see any mercy going on here for me. Knowing that it's at work. 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. You know, and during those time of testings and temptations and, and, and uh, trials, right, we're tempted to maybe back off, step away, be discouraged. Um, we may be tempted to um, do things that I think we've talked about in church before and in services before and in lessons that there's sins of commission and there's sins of omission, right? There's sins that uh, we obviously commit and then there's sins that we commit through omitting something out of our life. And sometimes we may be tempted to do one or the other when we enter into this storm. But again, a good reminder that no temptation is uh, uh, overtaken us, that God doesn't give us a way to escape. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10. Anybody got that down yet? <laughs> Anybody there? I haven't got that down yet. Boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I am content with weaknesses insults, hardships, persecutions. I mean, is anybody there yet? <laughs> That's a hard, hard pill to swallow, right? Being content in those situations. But the reminder that God's grace is sufficient. And, of course, Peter's partner in this uh, time of life, Paul, writing those words, is very evident in his own life that he's suffered plenty. And we can take encouragement from his experience in the fact that he can say with, through that experience, that I'm content in these insults and these weaknesses and these trials. Verse 8 of 1 Peter chapter 1, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, uh, now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Verse 9, Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This word obtaining, I'm going to throw a big fancy English word on you right now. You're going to be impressed. This word comes from a Greek word that is a present participle. You impressed? No. I forgot all about the word participle. Uh, but anyway, this is a present, am I saying that right, or is it participle? Is it participle? See, I don't even know how to say it. <laughs> Might be a country thing. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that encouragement. I'm content. I'm content to have grown up in Kentucky and say things improperly. Um, anyway, so... This comes from a present word um, that means receiving. It's ongoing. It's a, it's a present tense of that I am receiving. So going back to this verse, it says, obtaining the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls, this hope, this living hope that he just got done talking about, we are obtaining that. It's a present thing. It's every day. We are obtaining this living hope. Not that we're getting more and more of salvation. It's not a thing about salvation. It's the thing about that, hey, we are living in this life with Christ. He's going with us. Um, as we look at, uh, you know, the life of Christ, we see where he was always in constant communion with the Father. Everywhere he went, he was always in communion with the Father. You know, we see that in, um, 
Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22, verses 6 through 8, is talking about Abraham and Isaac as they go on their journey to Mount Moriah. Uh, Several times, even with a knife in hand and the wood in the other hand, uh, the Bible says that they both went together. They were in constant communion on their way to uh, to that mountain. Same thing, and that's a picture of, of course, Jesus always being in constant communion with the Father on his way to the cross. And just a reminder to us that going through these trials, being in constant communion with the Father, that's what we should be every day, right? Going down to verse number 13, let's start there. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who has called you holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. I love the first part of verse 13 that says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action. So in light of the what is going on in the world around what Peter is writing to the church about, he's telling them to prepare our minds for action. Right? As soon as I read this, I started thinking about my two boys. They're always preparing for action. They are. They're frequently, they say, Dad, what if a bad guy comes just barging in the door? They're playing this scenario out in their mind, like, what Nerf gun am I going to (laughs) grab? If a bad guy comes through that door, Dad, I'm grabbing that sword over there. That lightsaber, I'm grabbing my best one. And sometimes they'll even start acting it out, right? They'll even go to the extreme of, they'll show me the moves, that they'll use on this person, right? Always preparing. They're getting ready for action. You know, and as Christians facing uh, this persecution that the church was at the time, and as we'll start going through chapter 2, some difficult pills to swallow, he's telling them, hey, maybe start playing these things out in your mind and start preparing. How are you going to respond when those knocks come on your door? When that bad guy comes barging in, what are you going to do? Prepare our minds for action. So this quote in verse 16, you shall be holy for I am holy, comes from Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44. You shall be holy for I am holy. Leviticus chapter 11 uh, is teaching us about the um, acceptable or the uh, what is considered the ceremonially clean animals. All right? And so what is, what is ceremonially acceptable as a burnt offering? So what are the two criteria of a four-legged animal uh, to be considered clean? No split hoof? What else? Chewing the cud, that's right. Chewing the cud. So grass-eating animals, right, that have multiple stomachs or however it is, they chew it. What's the word? What's the fancy word for it? Regurgitate, right? Sorry, this thing is uh, not wanting to uh, stay in place. All right, so they regurgitate, they swallow it, they regurgitate it, and they chew on it some more. Right, They get some more nutrients out of it, and they swallow it, and they regurgitate it, and they get some more nutrients out of it. So these ceremonially clean animals were actually pretty gross. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, there's, of course, everything, like in everything in the Old Testament, there's a picture. And, um, you know, these animals that would uh, chew and uh, regurgitate this, this nourishment to get everything they could out of it. As Christians, as God people, uh, God's people, we should constantly be regurgitating the truth that we've read, we've memorized, we've studied. We should constantly be meditating, getting all the nourishment we can out of that. And the split hoof, interestingly enough, means that uh, it's talking about an animal's hoof that goes into the mud, walks through the mud. Those split hoofs keep that mud from caking on the bottom of their hoof. Not like a horse where if it walks through mud, that starts caking on the bottom of their hoof. And if they leave the mud and go on to clean ground, they're going to start tracking that mud everywhere they go. You take an animal with a split hoof that walks through the mud, it's going to leave some pretty clean tracks after it gets out because none of that mud is stuck to them. That split hoof keeps that mud from sticking to their feet. You know, as God's people... Now, this is interesting because Peter was a pretty devout Jew, uh, as we know, and he held pretty tightly to some... Uh, ceremonial laws, and he even gave Paul a kind of a hard time uh, about the law of circumcision and the Gentiles. But when we leave our old nature, when we accept Christ, 
and we leave our old nature, we leave the mud, we should be constantly meditating on the things of God, constantly regurgitating that, and we should leave the world behind. We shouldn't be tracking, the world shouldn't be tracking behind us. As we are our new creation, as Scripture says, we leave the mud behind, right? And as we start walking in our new creation, we shouldn't start leaving muddy tracks everywhere we go. He's saying, be holy for I am holy. Walk cleanly, right? All right, so verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 6. And we know that scripture teaches us that we should go to go into the throne room boldly, go before our Creator boldly. We can go to Him in prayer boldly, as children go to their Father, right? Reverentially, but boldly nonetheless. This is, uh, this, is uh, this passage of Scripture, if, if you really allow it to, it, it can change your prayer life. If you see what Isaiah saw as he peeks into the throne room, we can see his response to what really, what I believe Scripture tells us is the fear of God. We're not scared of God, but we definitely should fear the fact that He is holy. We should definitely be in reverential awe and fear that He is omniscient, that He's uh, omnipotent, He's all-powerful, right? So, chapter 6, verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of His robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above Him, they each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew, and one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies, His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorway shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. So here He is, this temple's filling with smoke, these angels are crying out holy, the ground's shaking. Just put yourself in His shoes, and we'll see here what I believe Scripture teaches is the fear of the Lord. He says, Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and live among a people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have now seen the King, the Lord of armies. He realizes the holy God that he is before and the unholy man that he is. He basically falls down on the ground on his face and says, I'm a dead man. I'm in the presence of God. And again, we can go to the throne room boldly, God tells us to. He wants to hear from us. But in 1 Peter here, it also tells us that conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Exile meaning we are just pilgrims here, right? We're just passing through. This isn't our permanent home. We are just passing through. We're not to get comfortable. Um, in my previous job, I did some international travel. And there were some places that I went that I felt very uncomfortable. I went to some places that were pretty unsafe, um, that I looked very different. I was very unique. <laughs> a tall, bald man, walking around people that were much shorter than me and had much more hair than me. I was in a place where I didn't feel very comfortable. Happened several times. You know, I was there to do a job, and I was very happy to be getting on the plane to be going back home. That's how we should feel here in this world. This is not our home, right? We're just, we're just in exile here, as Scripture says. We're just, we're just here as pilgrims. We're just passing through. Now, praise God for His mercy that He gives us so many things to enjoy on our pilgrimage, but we are still pilgrims. We're not meant to stay comfortable and long for the things of the world. If we find ourselves saying, God, I really want you to, I really don't, I'm not looking forward to heaven because of the things of the world, probably should spend some time in prayer about that. And I'm not being condemning, because I've been there. I've been there. I remember before I was married and had kids, I was like, God, I want to get married and I want to have kids. I don't want you to come back yet. Anybody relate to that? You know, there's even a part of me, I want to experience being a grandpa. You know, and what amazing mercy that God's shown us by allowing us to have that much joy in this pilgrimage, right? But he reminds us here, conduct yourselves with fear. So conduct ourselves knowing that God is holy, that God, uh, that God is sovereign, that God... His mercy is always working. Remember all these things. Conduct ourselves with fear. Moving on to verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways. This is a picture of humility. Remembering who we are. Remembering what God has saved us from. 
inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. Walk humbly. Remember that we were redeemed from our empty way because of Jesus. Micah 6.8, who's got that? Mackenzie? So, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly, right? 1 Peter 1.19, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So he gives us a reminder to walk humbly, to remember who we are, who God is, to, to conduct ourselves with fear. And then he goes right into reminding us about this holy living. So why the holy living? Verse 21, so that your faith and hope are in God. As we fear God, as we recognize how holy and just and merciful and sovereign He is, how we realize how all-knowing and all-powerful He is, our faith and hope can point to Christ by how we conduct our lives. Verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. You know, this having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. You know, this is such an important part of why we need to learn obedience when we're young, right? Learning obedience when, you're, when we're young allows us to know, okay, when God says something, we need to do it, right? So having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Loving, our believer, uh, loving other believers is part of this holy living. A sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Verse 23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So along with this subject of holy living that he's uh, encouraging the church with is... Loving other believers. The next one that he talks about is repentance. Ridding ourselves of, this, of all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. This word put away is also used in other places uh, throughout Scripture, but it's uh, interpreted differently. Put away is the same as it's used in Romans chapter 13, verse 12. Uh, it's, uh, it's actually interpreted cast off. It's also used where the coats were laid at Saul's feet, not Saul's feet. Yeah, Saul's feet, where the coats were laid down at his feet. Same word. So that's the concept that uh, he's trying to get across here. So lay it down. Get rid of it. Rid yourselves of all, all of this sin. Repent. Was it David Chafee that taught uh, a message on repentance when he was here? It's an important part of holy living. We've got to repent of sin in our life. Continual, deliberate choices to which nature we're going to submit. Verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 2 continues this line of uh, instruction here and encouragement. Like newborn infants, long for this uh, pure spiritual milk that, it may, uh, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So along with loving other believers, along with repentance, he says our new nature cannot grow without nourishment. So what nature are we going to submit to? He encourages the church that, hey, without nourishment, our new nature cannot grow. Going down to chapter 2 and verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So this word excellencies, that you may proclaim the excellencies, this, is, uh, the, this word conveys the thought of the goodness and pure ways of God. So he says, but you're a chosen race. He talks about uh, living holy, the nourishment that we need. We need to be growing this, we are chosen raised to rural priesthood, a holy nation, for his own possession. Why? What's the reason for this holy living? So that we can proclaim the goodness and the pure ways of God. Chapter 2, verse 10, he says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He's telling the Gentiles here that he's writing this letter to, he said, Once you weren't a people, but now you are. What made the Gentiles a people? Was it circumcision? 
Was it ritual ceremonies? Was it their bending to the Jewish law? It was Jesus, right? There weren't a people before Jesus, now they are. So, praise God, we're, some, we're something different than we were before Jesus, right? Why were they now people? Because of Jesus. So, we, so they may proclaim the praises of the one who saved them. Here we go again in chapter 2, verse 11, talking about us being sojourners and exiles. He's encouraging the church to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against their soul. Verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 17. Let's go there for just a moment. 1 Samuel 24, 17. 1 Samuel 24, 17. Going on the thought of verse 12 here, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Verse 17 in 1 Samuel, Then Saul wept aloud and said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have done what is good to me, though I have done what is evil to you. This is, of course, after Saul had been chasing after David to kill him. David had a perfect opportunity to cut him, but he cut off a piece of his robe and, of course, showed it to him later from afar, saying, Saul, I could have, I could have taken your life, right? Saul's recognizing this, saying, you, are, uh, you have done what is good to me, though I have done what is evil. That should be the Christian in our present world, where the world may see, those, the unbelievers may see, those that don't know Christ may see that we had an opportunity to maybe retaliate. We had an opportunity to say something ugly. We had an opportunity to uh, say something that maybe they would say, but we choose not to, right? There should be a difference. Keeping our conduct among them honorable. So, this is where it gets, it gets a little bit hard to swallow here, is chapter 2, and verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme. Who was emperor at this time? And what was he doing? But yet he's telling the church, be subject to these human institutions, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, really, or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should be put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. The church should be blameless in these times. So just some notes about this right here. God is sovereign over all authorities. We see this in 1 Chronicles 29. We see this in Psalms chapter 33. In Colossians 1, 16 and 17, Scripture says, Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. You know, God puts in place and works through governmental structure. John 19, 11 teaches us this. Acts 4, 27 and 28. Romans 13, 1 says, There is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. Romans 13, 6, The authorities are God's servants continually attending to these tasks. Persecution wasn't foreign to these guys that wrote these books of the Bible. It wasn't foreign to them. They were experiencing, they were living in it. But yet they were, they were teaching the church to be subject to these human institutions. The next thing is Christians are called to obey civil authority. Mark 12, 17, Jesus told them, Give to Caesar the thing that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Romans 13, 1 and 2, let everyone submit to the governing authorities. The one who resists the authority is opposing God's command. Christians are called to pray for those in civil authority. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority. When forced to choose between obeying God or man, Christians must obey God. That's Acts 5, 29. Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than people. But we do know that also Scripture teaches us that all human governmental systems will come to an end and Jesus will reign over all. This is Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, Hebrews 1, verse 2, and Revelation 19, 15. We know that God is ultimately going to rule the earth. But this is kind of a little bit of a hard pill to swallow, isn't it? Because we have rights that we like to defend, right? Well, let's get the picture again. Let's remind ourselves of where Peter's coming from here. He's coming from a point of total persecution, knowing that his crucifixion's coming soon, probably under this emperor. He's a smart guy, um, knowing what's happening to the church, but he's telling the church and reminding them that we need to be subject to authorities. 
We need to be subject to these. As we read, it gets a little bit even more difficult. Live as people, in verse 16 of 1 Peter 2, live as people who are free, but not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Wait, what? This guy that's coming after me to kill me. Just read a short paragraph here about this. The early church, full of the Holy Spirit, did not see demonstrations, marches, subversions, and guerrilla warfare as options for fighting, uh, for righting wrongs. Peter did not advocate a massive slave revolt as a means of redressing the, civil, uh, the social evil of slavery. He did not organize marches on Rome to put an end to the nightmare persecutions of the Christians. He did not call for an empire-wide strike to improve the lot of the poor. That was not the Holy Spirit's way. The Spirit of God is here to change people. He gives them new hearts and a love for God and their fellow men. They must learn how to be like Jesus. That is God's way. We are to deal with social ills by first dealing with spiritual ills. Peter had seen the Lord Jesus in action. He led no revolts, stirred no carnal passions, and led no crusades. He loved people, even his worst enemies, and he went about doing good. So I just encourage you to kind of look at the worries and the fears that you may have right now about what's coming and remind ourselves that as the church, we are to be law-abiding citizens, even when we may think the law isn't the right one. The only exception is if it contradicts Scripture, if it contradicts what God has commanded, right? That's the, only clear, uh, that's the only verse in Scripture that tells us when we can say, you know what, we ought to obey God rather than man. It is a difficult pill to swallow, and it may be difficult to apply that because we do enjoy a lot of freedoms and things that are rights here in America, right? But let's keep in mind what Scripture's teaching us about being good and being blameless. And when, uh, that what Peter's teaching the church here is that when, pe- uh, when people, when those that are unbelievers would accuse us of wrongdoing or, uh, or accuse us of doing evil or accuse us of being lawbreakers, that we should be blameless. Titus chapter 2, verse 10 talks about utter faithfulness to what is good. Romans 7, 18 talks about where there's, uh, Paul uh, says that nothing good lives in me. You know, God is our goodness. And the more we submit to Him, His Word, the more we follow what Peter's trying to teach us about living holy, about loving, the, uh, loving, the, uh, loving other Christians, about... Um, Loving other believers, repentance, continuously communing with the Father. This other faithfulness is an important testimony to those that don't know Christ. We're going to quickly move through the last few um, highlights I want to bring to your uh, bring to our attention tonight. Chapter two, verse twenty-four says, "He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed." His sacrifice was the payment to satisfy God's demand for justice. There's nothing we can do to help satisfy that demand any, anymore. He's already done it. And that's Hebrews 9.1 through 10.18. I would encourage you to read that maybe tonight or sometime during the week. Hebrews chapter 9 through verse uh, chapter 10. The first part of chapter 3 talks about our uh, obligations we have to family. As God's servants, we have obligations to our family. For the sake of time, we're not going to keep reading through the verses, but our holiness in response to the call to do good because of Jesus should prevail in our marriage and in our homes, keeping our marriage reflective of Christ and His church. That's a big responsibility to make sure our marriages and our homes reflect Christ and His church. It's a picture to the world of what Christ does through His people. We are to live pure, reverent lives with one another, honoring each other in order that our relationship our family and our home is blameless in pointing to Christ. You know, as it goes through chapter 3, starting in verse 8, talks about that we have some obligations to fellowship as well. 1 Peter 3.8 talks about having unity of mind. You know, we need to be compatible. Within the church, the capital C church, Allie and I have been saying uh, a little thing here lately, and it sounds a little silly, but we shouldn't make a thing about things that aren't a thing, right? <laughs> and we shouldn't make a thing about things that aren't a thing. So, and that's, sometimes we can do that, right? We can do that as opinionated people. We can do that as confident people. We can make a thing about something that really 
God doesn't say should be a big thing. And even amongst the church, we kind of get really condemning and critical of other Christians. We've got to steer away from that. Don't make a thing about it. Um, and uh, he's encouraging the church have unity of mind. That doesn't mean that we back off of Bible doctrine. That doesn't mean that we uh, cave when it comes to what Scripture teaches. Again, we ought to obey God rather than man. But we have bigger things to worry about than our disagreements with the Christian around the corner, right? Chapter 3, verse 9 talks about not being, not retaliating. That's important for our Christian living as well. I want to get to the end of chapter 4 here. As we go to chapter 4, verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by strength that God supplies, in order that in, order that in everything God might be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Behold, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. He's telling the church here, he's saying, get ready, it's coming. When the fiery trial shows up at your door, it's coming. Be ready. Have a mind ready for action, right? What lightsaber are you going to pick? Fight that battle, right? Not literally. Don't grab a sword. But how are you going to respond in those situations when that fiery trial shows up at your doorstep? Verse 19, chapter 4, verse 19, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We're supposed to be a good people, right? We're supposed to be going about doing good. We're supposed to be living holy lives, not because we in our human effort can be holy. There's nothing good within us. The only thing that's good within us is Jesus. The only thing good, uh, only good thing about us is Jesus. But he's, uh, he reminds us, entrusting our souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Chapter 5 and verse 6 says, Humble yourselves therefore into the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while... The God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Going back to verse 7, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. You ain't anxious at all about what's going on around us? You have any fear or worry about what's going on around us? I think as human beings that pay attention, there are some human concerns and worries. I'm sure our youth has some worries and concerns about what their future looks like. Let's point them to Christ. Knowing that, and young people and all of us, but young people, are you ready for that fiery trial that may knock at your door one day? Are you prepared to, uh, to face persecution for your walk with God? Are you ready to stand up and say, you know what, I ought to obey God rather than man? But in gentleness and in blamelessness, that's important. Casting all our care upon him, for he cares for us. There was a uh, songwriter in the early 1900s. His name was Charles Weigel. Anybody ever heard of him? Charles Weigel? So he was, uh, he was an evangelist. He didn't get into uh, evangelism until later in life. But one time he came home from a crusade, and a note was left by his wife, and she told him, I'm, I, I'm, not, going, I'm not willing to live this life married to a evangelist anymore and i'm leaving and she left and he admits to going into a pretty dark place in his life for a couple of years he really uh had a hard time even uh, admits to contemplating suicide because in his mind he was fighting this trial of well god i've been serving you faithfully why did this happen to me after a couple of years he comes to this place and he writes a song i would love to tell you what i think of jesus since I found in him a friend so strong and true, I will tell you how he changed my life completely. He did something that no other friend could do. No one ever cared for me like Jesus. There's no other friend so kind and true. No one else could take the sin and darkness from me. 
Oh, how much he cares for you. He wrote that song after going through that time in his life. What a great friend we have in Jesus, right? One who is our goodness. One who is our holiness. One who does the work in us. One that tells us we don't have to go through this in our own strength. One that tells us that we don't have to try to be good in our own strength. One that tells us, hey, you know, I know I'm expecting you to be subject to all these crazy people, but I'm there with you. I'm your friend. There's never going to be a friend that's truer or kinder or more faithful than Jesus, and he's going to be there through it all. Whatever happens, church, if they come barging in the doors to put us all in prison, if they barge in the doors to kill us all one day, Jesus is with us. We all hate for that to happen, but remember, we're just exiles and sojourners here. This isn't our home. We should be a little uncomfortable. We should, we should be at the point where we can't wait to get on that plane and get back home. Because <laughs> that's our home. Our inheritance is being kept for us in heaven. God the Father, the person, not the place. The worst thing that could happen is we could die and go to heaven. I say that lightly, but it's really true, isn't it? So let's just take some encouragement from Peter tonight that in the moments that he was living in, in the moments that he knew the church was living in, And he's really saying, guys, we can do this. Through what Jesus has already done, we can live holy. We can love each other. We can live gently. We can live honorably. We can live blamelessly in this crazy, crazy world because of who Jesus is and because of what he's done. Amen? All right. Let's have a word of prayer tonight. God, we thank you so much for what you've done in our life. We thank you for Jesus. God, we thank you for continually working in our life, God, to just make us more like you. God, thank you for being our holiness. Thank you, God, for being our friend. Thank you for being our goodness. And God, even though there's no good thing in us, God, you still died for us. Thank you, God, for the promise of that inheritance that you're keeping for us. Thank you, God, for the hope that we get to spend eternity with you. But God, we thank you so much that we don't have to wait for heaven to be with you. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you, God, that just as Abraham and Isaac went together, God, that we are walking together with you each day. And despite what may happen, good or bad, in, our, in the world around us, Lord, we can get encouragement knowing that there's never been such a great friend that's been so kind and true. There's no other, uh, no other such great friend rather than Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you, guys.